I have a unique vantage point. I have a consulting firm where I work directly with clients, executive coaching and change management, pretty busy speaking schedule. I also run the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, which is an online membership site for board and staff leaders of nonprofits. This all offers me a close-up look at literally thousands of nonprofit leaders. And I'm here to tell you that I believe we have an epidemic on our hands, one that is responsible for more executive director attrition than anything else I've seen. The pure, unadulterated abuse of power. The stories are hard to listen to. They could be good old-fashioned bullying or clear cases of sexual harassment. Maybe you're thinking, why should our sector be exempt from this problem? Aren't all places confronting this ugly reality? But maybe there's a difference that makes this a harder problem to grapple with in the nonprofit sector. I've been thinking that maybe it's because a great deal of the power in a nonprofit organization rests with volunteers, board members. There's no employee handbook to point to, and so the boundaries are just not clear, and it can cause trouble. Today, I'm going to bring the epidemic to life by sharing real stories of nonprofit leaders anonymously, and I'm going to share them with two experts, one who can speak to prevention and the other who will offer some practical advice shaped by the law. The stories I've heard through the years have made me furious, with staff leaders feeling no recourse and taking it because the mission of the organization means so much to them. This became urgent for me recently with a column that I wrote for the Chronicle of Philanthropy at philanthropy.com. The article created so much engagement and so many anonymous comments and so much appreciation. I knew I needed to bring the conversation to a different platform. So here we are. Let's get started. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, author, blogger, and founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, gets it. She is here to help. So not one, but two guests today. First, Sarah Bilya, a writer and speaker who trains workplaces on skills-based sexual harassment prevention and response. She's the author of Breaking the Silence, a practical guide to uncomfortable conversations in the Me Too workplace. Her expertise has been featured in multiple news outlets, including Fox News, Harvard Business Review, the AP, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, NPR, Ask Men, and the Boston Business Journal. In 2018, Sarah, along with Russ Hammonds, co-founded An Uncomfortable Conversation, which is a nonprofit YouTube channel, this is interesting, that helps people engage in meaningful conversation around sexual violence through short videos. She's a proud graduate of Brown University and lives with her family in Boston, Massachusetts. Sarah, it's nice to have you back. Always good to see you. Yes, thanks for having me. Our second guest, not just one, but two, is is Kim Jones. Kim Jones is an employment trial lawyer representing companies, non-for-profits, and higher education institutions in federal and state courts and before AAA and labor arbitration panels. In addition to providing day-to-day counsel on human resource issues, she trains management and non-management employees nationwide on a variety of employment issues, including prohibited harassment, effective supervision, and managing the absent employee. Kim currently serves as her firm's managing partner. Kim Jones, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, So in my opening, I kind of hypothesized that the reasons 
abuse of power and harassment may be more prevalent in the nonprofit sector is because of the powerful role that volunteers play. And I know, having been an executive director, that it feels different, maybe harder, to hold volunteers accountable. I'd love kind of your thoughts on this conceptually, and then we're going to tease out two scenarios and have you each weigh in on them. So, um, Sarah, what do you think? Uh, the, 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 the volunteer piece of this, does that make it different in the nonprofit sector? Uh, in, in some ways, I think it does. I mean, in some ways, I think it, it, it uh, dissolves this illusion that the rules are going to help you. And so, you know, to some oh. extent, it's, you know, as you think about well, inside my organization, I have control. I have control through policies. I have control through my employee handbook where, you know, I think that is, you know, to one extent true. That's a really having, having the rules is a really important tool and a really important thing to have in place. But unless you're, you're thinking proactively and preventatively about how your organization is navigating power, boundaries, relationships, and behavior, then you're going to run into problem because you're dealing with humans. And so I think, you know, as you're thinking about an organizations, particularly in the nonprofit sector, and so when you're talking about volunteers, you might be talking about volunteer staff, you might be talking about board members, you might be talking about donors. Um, there are inherent levels of power within each of those roles, and though that power exists outside of the organization. And then there's obviously, you know, in, in you know, in the nonprofit sector, different kinds of power that are associated with money, that are associated with race, that are associated with gender. And so all of those things kind of come into play um, in, in, and play out in incidents of harassment, incidents of bullying that we'll talk about today. Um, Kim, what do you think? I, I agree with Sarah. I, I do think that there is a misconception that we don't have control and we can't exert that kind of control over volunteers. And I think um, organizations become paralyzed um, because they think, well, they're not an employee. I really can't enforce any sort of policy or expectation upon them. And that's a real um, misconception. And I think we'll, we'll talk about some of that um, in the context of some of the hypotheticals. I also think depending on who, for example, who that volunteer is, whether that volunteer is someone with a wide sphere of influence, someone who gives a great deal of money, or if you approach board recruitment from a place of scarcity rather than abundance, I think oftentimes um, executive directors or board chairs will um, <clears throat> operate from a place of fear about, oh, well, if I hold that volunteer accountable, they may leave, right? Without actually understanding the collateral damage that board volunteer might be creating. Right. I, I mean, I would also add to that, Joan, too, that it's the, the mission focus of nonprofit organizations and nonprofit leaders is one of those things. It just heightens the intensity of some of these kinds of experiences because you feel like you're, it, it, you feel like your mission is not just about you, but it's about your mission and it's about the people that you serve. And so, which can cloud our ability to really, as, as Kim was saying, use the tools that we have to hold people accountable for their behavior. Um, so when I talk about, you know, when I use my tagline, nonprofits are messy, one of the things that I talk about is, is this, um, you know, this notion of passion for the mission and that can make judgment and decision making, um, more challenging that that as well as the fact that every decision seems to matter equally, but, um, 
you know, if we if we stood by every decision we made when we were in the heat of passion, we probably would make a few mistakes along the way. So, um, uh, so um, I, I think that's really useful. Uh, I also have a friend who um, who talks about board recruitment that uh, he actually refers to them as hiring board members. Um, and, you know, I talk a lot about that when I do speaking gigs, that you're actually hiring board members who are not being paid, but they they get gifts from the organization by virtue of their service. And so I think that reframing what board service looks like actually will inter- start to introduce more sense of accountability. Um, so what we're going to do today is we're going to uh, – I picked two questions – that um, I'm going to let our experts um, kind of tease out. Uh, and so let's just, let's just get to it. <clears throat> so here's a question. Six months ago, my board chair's husband filed for divorce, leaving her for a younger woman. Since then, she has felt powerless in every aspect of her life, it seems, except as the board chair of the school that I run. She has been micromanaging, interfering with staff decisions, and making my life miserable. Recently, honestly, I made a few missteps. None of them deal breakers or catastrophic, not seen like that by anyone except her. Here she saw an opportunity to really lead. She used her power to build alliances with several board members. They rallied the troops and last week called for a vote to oust me. I survived. My board chair was one vote shy. She immediately quit the board, but I feel demoralized and humiliated. Okay, so for listeners who are on their treadmill or in the car, right, we've got a board chair who feels powerless in every aspect of her life but this one and um, arguably abuses power here with um, with the head of a school. Um, so let's start with Kim. I want you to just sort of tease out for me what you hear in that. Uh, what the, yeah, what are the, what are your observations, takeaways, thoughts about that? Um, well, and, and, uh, Sarah's heard me say this. It, my, my initial thought is, you know, the law is a very blunt instrument to try and deal with, <laughs> address, um, human interaction. And, and frankly, absent the existence of an employment contract by the head of school that the head of school might have, there really isn't a legal issue here. This is an interpersonal issue. Um, and so, you know, what I would be thinking about is obviously there's a, there's an element of empathy that we have to bestow upon the board chair. She's obviously going through a very difficult time in her life um, and is acting out in a way that is not useful and is is destructive. But she kind of gave uh, the head of school a gift by quitting (laughs) the board, frankly. And, And what I would really be looking at is for the head of school to do a reset because obviously she lost half of her board. They were willing to oust her. And so she needs to, or he needs to, it's not clear, um, sort of strategize about how they would reset the tone with the remaining board members and, and set forth an expectation about what is the role of the board? Are they strategic or are they doing tactical things? Um, what is the, versus what is the role of the head of school? 
Um, how can the board work to support the head of school and guide them or be a resource for them? And sort of a setting of expectations in terms of um, what kind of culture are we trying to develop here, not only in the school, but in the leadership, uh, including the board. And I think that needs to be a collaborative conversation and, and use it as an opportunity for reset as opposed to sort of, you know, coming so demoralized, they, they spiral further. So before, we, before Sarah jumps in, let me ask you a question. Would your answer be different if the board chair stuck or was sticking around, this board chair was sticking around and continuing to be, um, continuing to be this negative slash toxic force in the organization? Yes. <laughs> okay. Be. So let's, let, let's do that one too. <laughs> I, I think, I think that's a lot more challenging. Um, if they continue to be disruptive and, and be there and exert this sort of power. And at that point in time, you've got to sort of look at the structure of the board and the organization. Does the board have a personnel committee? Is that a resource that the head of school can go to um, to sort of address some of these issues? Um, you might be looking for legal avenues. Um, I, it is unfortunate to say, but Oftentimes, individuals who feel vulnerable or attacked or um, uneasy in their particular situation will use sort of a legal avenue, even though they don't really have a claim, but to get attention, you know, to uh-huh. get the people's attention that what's right. happening here is not right. Right. Um, and so, you know, in that circumstance, someone wants to go that direction, but in that circumstance, it may be what is necessary to, to get their attention as to it not being okay the way this board is acting. Okay, so I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go to Sarah, and then I have some thoughts about what you just said. So I'll, I will. I will hit my pause button and go to Sarah on this. And I would like you to kind of go both angles, right? The one is where the board chair does in fact leave, and the other one is where the board chair um, sticks around. Yeah, I mean, I think there there'd be two things that I'd layer on top of of both of both of those avenues, which is really starting from a perspective of self-care and building, you know, sort of accessing the community and the community resources that you have around. So, so when I hear somebody say, making my life miserable, I feel demoralized and, and humiliated, you know, come that to me comes with a sense of I'm not feeling safe and secure. So, mm-hmm. so it's hard to act from a place of, you know, whether you're pursuing legal avenues um, to bring in and manage a board, a board chair who is staying and you know that there's going to be some continued toxic um, interactions, or if you are thinking about onboarding and creating a new culture and looking towards the future, it's very hard to do that if you are still feeling uh, you know, upset about the the present and not feeling kind of safe and secure. So I, you know, starting from the place of you know who are the people that you have around you as your mm-hmm. as your kitchen cabinet. So I think right. in, in an ideal situation, your board is your kitchen cabinet across a whole number of, of areas of of expertise. But if that is not the case, like who's your who's your informal board? Like your board for yourself as a leader and as a human being in the world. And so call those people in. Uh, and let them know what what's happening, so that you can do the the self reflection that's going to be necessary in order to take the next step. So, you know, that would be one. And then I think just just double clicking on the idea of culture boarding on the board, beginning with onboarding. And so, you know, so how did we get to this place where you know I'm, I I look at the situation where it's like how did we get to a place where the other members of the board um, 
are allowing this kind of behavior Correct. to happen. Like, where's the board chair's friends? Like, where, you know, like, who's talking to her and saying, like, hey, I know you're going through a really hard time, but, like, cut it out. Like, you can't, you can't do that here. And so, um, and that really comes from having more open and transparent conversations about, about power, about the kinds of relationships between board members and EDs. What does a healthy relationship look like? And so if we're not having conversations about what healthy relationships look like between a board and an ED and not holding each other accountable to it is, you know, I don't think it's fair to ask this uh, this ED to hold their board chair accountable for behavior when there's other people who have more power that are also in the room. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting that I, I hear a lot about this and I talk about uh, thriving nonprofits like Twin Engine Jets with the board chair and the executive director as kind of the co-pilots. And in this case, this is not somebody I want in the cockpit with me, right? And um, I think this is a huge issue in the sector of um, <clears throat> toxic, where the board chair is the problem. And the executive director actually doesn't really feel like they have any agency to contend with um, with the challenge. And I absolutely, you know, usually when I, when I am talking to people, because I, I don't own the blunt instrument of the law, um, and in fact, that could, I think there are many times when that could, that can exacerbate the situation. Don't you think, Kim? Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. yeah and, become very antagonistic very quickly. Yes. And, and, <laughs> um, and, and in fact, in that situation, I think if you actually went a legal route, it would be, uh, you'd almost be give, like showing that she has so much power that you've actually called in big guns. Right. Yeah. So um, I think that the idea of um, this, this goes back to me of who, how have you built your board and who's on it? You know, first thing I say when people say to me, you have a toxic board, board chair, it's like, well, <laughs> where you been? Like how, you, at what you just sat idly by and this like board chair just landed like manna from heaven. You know, it's like, you know, it's part of the building a leadership pipeline so that you are not surprised when a person is put into a position of power that they abuse it. So um, uh, uh, I think a very interesting, uh, a very interesting, and everybody who is listening to this call, uh, to this uh, podcast should really be thinking about both all of these dynamics about where do you find your support, where do you identify that self-care, and how do you build, and I'm a huge fan of Survivor, I've watched every episode since the <laughs> very beginning of time, so how you build an alliance to get somebody voted off the island, you know, there's some lessons in that and they are relational and uh, they are about shifting the power dynamics in an organization. So any, any reactions or last comments about that, Sarah? I see Sarah smirking. No, I was, I was mostly smirking about some of the most recent episodes of Survivor where you should, you should not make up it, stories about harassment in order to build alliances to get, to get off the island. So I just wanted to make You're that at, point. Oh my God, we could so talk about that. I just, so, so you watched Survivor 2 or I, you actually well, no, knew I about actually, this? I've only read the articles about it. I haven't actually seen the episode about it. But because I speak primarily about sexual harassment, everybody has come to me telling me that I need to watch these two episodes of Survivor about this particular sexual harassment dynamic that played out. 
Um, yes, I, I, actually, my wife, who is the real survivor fanatic, would <laughs> get um, and has been a television producer and has created reality shows, um, had a lot to say about it. So yes. we could um, do a separate. We could do a separate yeah. episode on that. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think it's for the nonprofits or messy, but it would be fun. Um, so, okay, so here's another one. And um, again, the first one we see in all different kinds of ways with volunteers who um, abuse their power of their position and and sort of wield it over staff. This is a different kind of situation. So here we go. One of our most generous donors hosted a fundraiser in his home last night. Fancy staff, fancy house, wait staff, super high end. Our major gift officer is a young woman who was the point person for the event, and she spent a good amount of time with this donor regarding logistics for it. She returned to the office and she said that many things that he said and did made her feel very uncomfortable. We have a small staff. There wasn't really anyone else to run the event. The night of the fundraiser, he said something to her that she told me was a comment rich with sexual innuendo and bordered on aggressive in his behavior. Um, I, I knew nothing about that incident until she approached me, said she needed to leave, obviously upset. She's going to be in the office tomorrow morning. What do I say? What do I do? Um, so let's start with the legal side of this first. There's a, there are a lot of things going on here. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> well, first of all, um, the the leader needs to meet with this staff person. The first thing, reemphasize or emphasize um, the importance of um, the the organization's policy prohibiting discrimination and harassment. That thank the person for coming forward and letting you know, the leader know that this had happened to her, because I think what we don't always appreciate is it it is a really scary thing to make a complaint or to raise a concern. And particularly in the nonprofit world, where, I mean, by definition, nonprofit, they don't have a lot of money and they're dependent on donors. (laughs) It is really scary to make a complaint about a donor when you're thinking about sort of the financial implications or potential financial implications to the organization, if this blows up. So I think it really is important to sort of thank the person for having the courage to, to tell them, uh, to tell what, what had happened. Um, but, you know, the thing that all nonprofits have to remember is, and all organizations, I mean, it doesn't matter if it's profit, for-profit or not-for-profit, is that we can be legally liable um, for conduct by third parties who are not employees of the organization, not managers, we can be legal, legally liable if we knew about it and fail to take prompt, effective remedial action. So we're now on notice. This leader is now on notice that this has happened and we've got to address it. It may be um, they need to investigate. Maybe it's a one-off conversation with the donor um, and, and what really struck me about this scenario um, was something that you said, Joan, at the beginning. Um, if you are approaching a situation from a place of abundance versus scarcity, um, you're going to have a lot more ability to deal with this directly and effectively. But if you are in a place of dealing uh, 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 of scarcity, 
Um, what I have seen over the years is that really results in in paralysis sometimes um, by the leadership of an organization and and what results is a failing to deal with something effectively and a much bigger problem uh, results. Right. And then before we go to Sarah, I think that what I, what I also experience is that people operate out of fear. I don't want to lose that donor. That donor may in fact be the best friend of someone who's on my board. Right. And how do I navigate that? And if you, uh, and you, you actually, if you navigate from fear, I think you, you lose. I think you navigate from the place where your mission is always at the core. What are you doing that is always in the best interest of your organization and its ability to fulfill its mission? And if you start from that place always, you're in a much better position to make choices and be able to stand by them and be held accountable for them and uh, feel like you are firmly planted on the high road. So let's go to Sarah. Yeah. So, so you know, thinking, thinking about what Kim is saying, right? So understanding, so one is starting from a place of understanding that you as the leader of an organization are responsible for the organization's, you know, sustainability, which in this case is you're on notice. The organization can be held legally liable. There is a cost to that, a, you know, both a mission cost and a financial cost. Um, and that there are some steps that are going to have to happen, right? So potentially an investigation, a conversation with the donor. So kind of how do you then handle this conversation that you're going to need to have with your major gift officer through the lens of supporting them the best that you can, given that, you know, you're, you're an individual, you care about this person, you're also in an organizational role and you have organizational responsibilities. And so, you know, so for me is where that starts is, you know, first by doing what you can do to, to understand and establish safety, both personal safety and psychological safety. So it's like, is this person feeling safe? Recognizing that, um, you know, that this is going to be something that they might want to talk to somebody other than their boss right. about this and making sure that they under, you know, that it's like, you know, do you have somebody else that you can talk to outside of, outside of the organization? Do you have a place that you can be tonight where you're going to feel safe? And so just like making sure that you're attending to that person's um, safety expressing some empathy for, you know, it's like this person might be upset. This person might want to be like laughing it off or making a joke out of it. There's like lots of different emotions. And, and I think that's also, you know, to remember is that in some, in, in some cases, somebody's going to come to you and say, this person said such and such, it made me feel really uncomfortable and I feel very upset about it. In some cases, somebody's going to come to you and tell you something that is, is, logically extremely inappropriate <laughs> and unwanted, but they're not going to, they're not going to have that same tone. And so like being able to recognize when something's happened and, you know, something's happened in a dynamic in a relationship that if that had happened to a high school intern or somebody else who's like, no, no, I just want to handle it. Um, that, you know, that you still have a, have a organizational responsibility. Um, the third thing is really thinking about the degree to which you can give this major gift officer choices in a situation where she may not have choices. Like you may have to investigate, in which right. case there's going to be a conversation with the donor, which would mean that they would know that it was this person who had said something about it. And yeah. so, and so, you know, so you might have a major, you know, you might have a major gift officer say like, well, I don't want to make a big deal out of this. Like now I've told you, but I don't want to make a big deal out of it. 
Um, and like, please don't say anything to this person because I don't want to risk my career. And how am I going to be, you know, it's like, you know, there's going to be all of these things that are going on. And so how do you handle what you're going to need to do from a, you know, from a liability perspective with giving that, you know, it's like, look, like I, you know, we could send them an email. It could be me that has the conversation. It could be an external investigator that has the conversation, you know, whatever choices you're able to give somebody, um, within a parameter gives that person a feeling of empowerment over some over a situation in which they didn't have any power. And so I think it's like to the extent that you're able to do that. And then finally, honestly, like in this with this stuff, it's like look in the mirror, like as as a leader, because this like none of this should come as a surprise. If if you know if this is a comment, if this is a comment from the Chronicle of Philanthropy, the Chronicle of Philanthropy did a really great survey of the nonprofit sector and found that one in four fundraisers experience sexual harassment with most of it coming from donors. So like if you're shocked that your fundraisers are being harassed by their donors, that's your problem. Uh, and that the the time for a conversation about policy and also like to think about what is the reporting process and to communicate what that reporting process is. Because like the worst thing is like this thing happens, I'm coming to you, I'm telling you, and then you've got an ED who's like scrambling to put together some kind of process because right. they've like never occurred to them that this was actually going to happen. That makes the person feel really bad and it makes them feel like you don't care about them, which kind of you don't. And so, um, you know, so I think it's, you know, to the extent that you're able to be very clear about your policy, be very clear about how your policy covers third party interactions. Um, you know, how frequently and, and vehemently are you communicating that no donor is worth your dignity? Like, that's just like, you know, that's not, that's not going to be what happens here. Uh, and if there's anything that ever happens, I want to know about it. And so, you know, and I think, and that also helps, you know, just from the perspective of, of, you know, you're going to want people to report to you. Um, but when they, there's a lot of reasons why people don't report and, and to the extent that you can build an organizational culture where you can have these kinds of conversations and, and like figure this out ahead of time. Right. So like this, this leader had two, you know, it's like had two conversations. So one is you've said some things that made me feel uncomfortable. And so it's like, okay, well, like, I'm sorry to hear that, but, um, good luck with the event. And then, you know, and then aggressive behavior takes place. And so like, that's, you know, that's not okay. And so we should, I mean, I think to the extent that when people tell you who they are, you should believe them um, and <laughs> right. start having some conversations about it. Um, I, I definitely, um, I, there's a, there's an issue with this leader who, um, set that major gifts officer back into that situation a second time. No question in my mind, right? That feels, that just feels off to me. I also think, and you made it a broader conversation, um, <clears throat> but I wanted to toss this in because I think that in these situations, people can ask, like a staff leader can have a certain amount of paralysis about what to say to the individual f and out of fear end up saying the wrong kinds of things. So let's say, Kim, that I um, I sit down with this staff member and, I, and I'm good on some things, but then I say, oh, yes. Paul is Paul has such a reputation. This comes as absolutely no surprise to me. Like um you want to put your insurance company on notice. Um, <laughs> if you have insurance. Um yeah. You know the the the, the um standard is um you know, do we have actual or constructive knowledge? 
um, of a problem. And obviously when the, when the um, staff member reported the behavior, that's actual knowledge or actual uh, notice. But obviously if the manager or the, the leader is saying, oh yeah, that's just how Paul is, that's constructive notice. We knew or should have known that this was likely to happen because these rumors have been going around the community or we've witnessed this kind of behavior um, for years or decades. Um, this is no surprise. So if, if our ED is making that comment, as I said, very bad, <laughs> um, but it, it exhibits that they've had notice um, constructively or otherwise that this is a problem and, and shame on them for sending this uh, individual into the, into the lion's den, if you will. And I would add, Joan, also, is that the the time to be having your first disclosure conversation about an incident of sexual harassment is not after an incident of sexual harassment has actually taken place inside your organization. So these are the kinds of conversations that you really want to get some, like you want to practice them. And that, and that's, and that's essentially the the tool, the, one of the many tools in the book, in my book, Breaking the Silence Habit is a, is an opportunity to practice conversations about disclosure, conversations about bystander intervention. So I'd also be asking myself, gosh, was there if this kind of behavior is happening at the event, like, and nobody's saying anything about it at the event, what other kind of staff or donor or community training do I really need to be advancing in, as my role as a leader in the organization, the community? So we are um, having a conversation about power in nonprofits and how it can be and is far too often abused. Uh, we are having a conversation about sexual harassment in the nonprofit workplace. And we are having this conversation with Sarah Bilia, who is a speaker and writer who trains workplaces on skills-based sexual harassment prevention and, res- and response. She just mentioned her book, Breaking the Silence, a practical guide to uncomfortable conversations in the Me Too workplace. We are also joined by Kim Jones, who is an employment trial lawyer who represents companies, nonprofits, and higher ed institutions. Um, She provides day-to-day counsel on HR issues uh, and trains management and non-management employees nationwide on a variety of employment issues, including prohibited harassment. Um, so I, this is the perfect opportunity, Sarah. The segue was great. Um, okay, so how do we prevent this? Um, how, do we, how do we set up a work culture um, that, um, as you said, where people do come forward so what are the mechanisms an organization be, should be putting in place? And I, I want to lead by just saying that I, in, in my own book, I have a chapter on crisis management. It's called When It Hits the Fan. And um, there is not a and – I, and I actually encourage nonprofit leaders to sit down and have – what's the worst thing that could happen conversation? What are the, what are the headlines you do not want to wake up and see in your local paper? And you can figure out what every single one of them is. You know what every one of them is right now, whether you're on the treadmill or on in stuck in traffic on a highway. And it, and so I just think that most challenges are preventable because you know what most of them are. 
So let's uh, so let's let's talk about Sarah. Let's talk about it from your yeah. perspective, and then if there are sort of legal um, uh, legal things to put into place, that would be really useful to hear too. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so my book. So the the book is it's breaking the silence habit because the idea with um, you know the idea is that silence is a choice that we make and it's a habitual choice that we make, particularly when we're faced with uncomfortable things. And power is an uncomfortable thing. Uh, and we interact with it all the time. Uh, and, and actually kind of where I, where I start just, you know, in terms of, of thinking about what, what's a, what's a framework. So one is you want to start with compliance, but you don't want to end with compliance. And so the idea is, um, is that you need to understand the law. You need to have a policy in place. You need to communicate your policy and you need to also be thinking about the, the third party dynamics that we were talking about as well as what your reporting process is. So that's like, you got to start with compliance. You got to have those building blocks in place and you need to communicate them on. I'm sure Kim can speak, um, speak more to those. But then second is, is you really, is you want to have an understanding in of yourself and inside your organization of what is your experience level tackling uncomfortable conversations. So if, if you don't have any experience tackling uncomfortable conversations, don't expect yourself to be good at it. If you have a lot of experience at it, but your board members don't, then you're going to have to bring them along and teach them that skill. So really kind of teaching and understanding what is an uncomfortable conversation, why is it important, why is it important for us to explore this, and, and teaching that and framing that up as a core skill for your staff is kind of is one of the place to start. Now, I, I know that you have bribed your kids with iPads so that you could do this uh, podcast from home. So I was thinking about this. I'm working with an independent Quaker school, and we're talking about how to build leadership attributes throughout the institution so that it's not seen like the head of school has to answer every problem or question. And um, and one of those skills is how do you have difficult conversations? And we were having a conversation about that. And... Um, we all decided that we needed to, uh, like I said, I know I, I don't, I don't know anything about educational curriculum in lower schools, but could you teach a class? Could you like focus on that as a theme in the lower school this year? Because you could maybe actually start to develop grownups who know how to do this. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think it's oftentimes we're surprised in the workplace that people don't have skills around this, but we shouldn't really be surprised because we don't teach them as skills. And so, you know, and so, but you, you can't move into, and and, and again, I'm going to speak mostly about sexual harassment and we can kind of come right. back to, to other kinds of, of power, but you know, you can't teach some of the other skills that we know contribute to effective prevention and response. So some of those skills are how to handle disclosures. So that was one of the things that we talked about today. That's a hard skill. You right. can't engage in that effectively unless you can put yourself into an uncomfortable conversation because a disclosure conversation, it's uncomfortable for the person disclosing. It's also uncomfortable for the person who is responding to the disclosure. It's just like, it's uncomfortable for everything. And there's, and no amount of practice is going to make it any less uncomfortable. So you you really just have to increase your tolerance for discomfort in order to do this at all. Second is bystander intervention. So that's, those are some of the skills that we talked about where 
Like why are, you know, board members are habitually silent and not speaking up when they're, they're viewing toxic or abusive behavior. They're just not saying something. Well, that's speaking up when you see something that is wrong is actually a skill. And you, it's, again, it's starting an uncomfortable conversation. So you really need to, again, practice that because what that feels like is it feels like there's a huge pit in your stomach and your heart starts beating really fast and your face gets red. And no matter how many times you've done it, if like, if you're doing it, that's what it feels like. So, and that's okay, but we still need to do it. Um, you know, additional conversations about how you create inclusive environments for people who've experienced sexual abuse or assault in the workplace as donors. There's so many different ways to break the silence on boundaries, behaviors, and, and healthy relationships in, in a workplace context that we just choose not to do because it's uncomfortable. And if you start conversations about sexual harassment and violence, people will continue them. There's an appetite and an eagerness to talk about this stuff in a healthy way. And so it's up to us as, you know, again, and it can be as a lead, you don't, but you don't have to be a leader in order to do this. Like you could be an intern. Right. And so it's really about how do you raise your hand and break the silence on an uncomfortable topic about power and do so in a way that invites people into conversation and to really, you know, it's a little bit more of that Quaker style of like, how do we engage in this conversation with a, from a reflective point of view and an, and an idea of moving forward into what we want in the world, which is that we want to go to work and to be able to work partner as co, you know, be co-pilots as a board chair and an, and an executive director and fly this plane safely and keep the passengers on it safe and like land it in a really great way. And like, that's what we want to do together. And we're going to need some new skills to do it. So like, let's build the skills together. Um, so let's talk about policies and that side of thing. As we as we're thinking about building this kind of culture and this kind of workplace environment, what should listeners be thinking about on the sort of more on the policy legal side of things? Well, in the in the nonprofit context, you know, I think most organizations have sort of their one or two policies that they always ensure that they've passed out to their board, their conflict of interest policy kind of being top of the list. But there's absolutely no reason that they cannot roll out and provide their board their anti-discrimination, anti-harassment policy, which presumably will include what include not only prohibited behaviors, but what the complaint procedure is what the uh, organization's response will be to investigate, to ensure that no retaliation takes place, and sort of set that expectation at the outset. I mean, I loved the, the, the reference uh, at the beginning of the, of the podcast about we should be hiring board members. And if we are truly hiring board members, then when we are onboarding them, we are telling them what our workplace culture is and what our expectations are are of them if they're going to be interacting with our workplace. And so that's an easy one um, to roll out. And then if you have fraternization policies or things of that nature, probably sharing those too. We don't want board members dating or trying to date some of our staff members. Um, That creates a conflict Uh, (laughs) and just a really bad idea. Um, So those sorts of things should always be in kind of our board packet uh, when we think about um, onboarding new members. But I like what you just said, Kim, which is, is you do actually need to explicitly say, like, you should not be dating staff members. And it's like, so then you've broken the silence. Like, it's like you right. created, like, so then if, if you're, in, you know, so then if you're interested, romantically interested like, in a staff member, because you can't control people's feelings with the policy, right. but you, you can control their behavior. And right. so, 
So, you know, you, you know, it's like, but you do need to mention those things or it's not just like assume that everybody knows what conflict of interest would obviously include dating a staff member. Right. You yeah. want to date him? That's fine. You're going to step off of the board. <laughs> right. It's really that. Yeah, and I, uh, I was rolling my eyes while Kim was talking about the dating, the board dating the staff member, because, you know, I, I, I can't tell you how many situations <laughs> I encounter where people say, you're not going to blog about that, are you? <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm just this treasure trove of, it's one of the reasons that led me to write that article for the Chronicle of Philanthropy is I was just so sick and tired of hearing these stories, especially in these smaller organizations. So the Nonprofit Leadership Lab is, you know, 3,000 people from all over the world who run really small nonprofits, which is the vast majority. And, <clears throat> you know, and the, and then the, the ability to anticipate, to initiate, to prevent, to think ahead is that that muscle is just so much harder for them to exercise. But what happens if you don't is so much greater an investment than the upfront investment. And that's what I think I'm hearing both of you say. Yeah. Yep. Um, what, because uh, we just have a couple more minutes. Um, so clearly, um, Sarah's book could be an excellent resource for folks. Uh, if if they want to continue this conversation, which they clearly should, um, do either of you, uh, can either of you offer, you know, sort of to learn more, you should think about or try reading this. And we can actually add the link under our podcast so that people can find their way to those things easily, including your book, Sarah. Yes. Well, I will. I will definitely say, read my book, Breaking the Silence Habit, a practical guide to uncomfortable conversations in the Me Too workplace. And it's, and it's, it is actually, it's written for managers of organizations and teams of all sizes, not necessarily just, you don't need to be a, an executive director. You don't need to be a human resource specialist. It's written for just regular folks who are aware that the Me Too movement is happening and they want right. to do something within their organization. It gives a bunch of practical tools that you can use with your board, with your staff um, and scenarios to work through. I would also encourage folks in the nonprofit sector to check out the the series that the Chronicle of Philanthropy did on the issue of the Me Too movement and sexual harassment. I think it's incredibly important and it was and it was really well done. Yeah. And if if you don't if you haven't embodied that knowledge and that data and those those statistics, like you're doing yourself and your team a disservice. Agreed. And Kim, how about on your side of things? What should a, how should a, a particularly even a smaller nonprofit address kind of the legal components, resources? Uh, a couple of things. One, um, eeoc.gov actually, they have a ton of material. They have um, kind of model policies that can be adopted and, Fantastic. and um, used for an organization. They have all kinds of research that they've done on the issue. You've got a little one out there. Um, all kinds of research that they've done on the issue. Um, and it's, it's I think, a, a great, free, easy resource. The other thing is when, um, you know, when, when, an organization is thinking about who they are onboarding or who they're hiring for their board, do a skill set, do a, a, you know, someone who has a legal, um, you know, legal background or legal experience and, and use that as a resource and tap into them to provide, you know, guidance, maybe some free training. Um, yep. you know, lots of lawyers who, um, uh, you know, do this sort of pro bono for not-for-profit organizations that they're involved in. So, um, you know, capitalize on that. 
I I completely agree. Uh, having, you know, when I was at Glad and we did not have, yeah, we didn't have very much money. Um, I had a pro bono general counsel. I also had a pro bono HR person too, who donated X amount of hours because I was not going to be able to bring on somebody who was senior to do, help me with big HR issues. And both of those people, they got... Um, you know, acknowledged in our materials and at our events and things like that. So please take advantage of the reservoir of goodwill of people um, who are out there, especially in this particular time and era when people are so hungry to um, be invited out of the stands and onto the field to be a part of making things better because there seems like there are so many things to make better. Um, so, um, I, I think we are out of time. Uh, I will also tell you that I can see Sarah's, uh, young, uh, young child in the background who, um, it's not lunchtime. She's probably already, he or she's already eaten lunch, right? She's hungry. She's hungry for candy. <laughs> they, okay. <laughs> all right. All right. I'm going to go find some candy too. Um, and all of you who are listening, have some candy today. You deserve it. And um, thank you so much to both Sarah and to Kim for um, joining us and for sharing your insights um, with them and actually for investing in the nonprofit space by virtue of your participation today. So thank you both. Thank you for having us. Um, So with that, uh, Sarah is off to give her daughter candy. And uh, we are off. I'm going to let these folks go back to their day jobs. I'm going to let you go to your day job and say, as always, um, thank you so much for listening. And um, thank you for all you do to change the world in ways large and small. Thank you so much. See you next time. Joan Gary's obsession with supporting your work takes many forms. Subscribe to her blog at JoanGary.com reaching over 100,000 visitors monthly from over 170 countries. Explore the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. Join 15,000 kindred spirits on Facebook at Thriving Nonprofit with Joan Gary.